Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Tigger Podcast with me, Noemi Di Stefano. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Pulse by Public.com, providing tools for IR teams to engage with retail shareholders. First episode back from the summer holidays. If you feel like those are a distant memory, you are not alone. But I certainly hope you had a good time. Let's have a look at what is coming up on the show this month. Great episode packed with great insights from some big names at big companies. We speak to Andy Barnett, Vice President and Global Head of IR at AstraZeneca since 2022, about his experience and efforts in driving the IR program at a company that has come under the spotlight quite a few times over the past few years. And retail investors aren't slowing down in 2023, driven by mega trends and some cultural moments, triggering new investment strategies and opportunities. Katie Perry, General Manager of Investor Relations at PulseByPublic.com, joins us on the ticker to discuss retail investor attitudes and some of the key findings from their most recent retail investor report. But first, I speak to Gervais Williams of UK-based asset management company Premier Mighton to get his thoughts on the future of the UK stock exchange markets, insights on investor sentiment and get best practice advice on how higher teams should go about bringing new investors on board. And this is coming up now on the Ticker Podcast. Gervais Williams, leading fund manager and head of equities at Premier Mighton. Welcome to the Ticket Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show this month. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. Um, I wanted to have you on the show to get your perspective uh, on the outlook of the UK stock exchange markets. A lot has been happening over the past year, over the past month, few years actually. Inflation, rising interest rates that now are dropping. Uh, so I wanted to discuss how uh, this impacts investor sentiment and what considerations IR teams should make when looking at listing venues or secondary listings. Um, so to start with, though, um, just wanted to pick up from your latest interview with IR Magazine, I think a couple of years ago. So in that interview, you said that uh, you anticipated the UK stock market to outperform the US uh, over the coming two decades. So just wanted to, to ask you if you your view has changed recently or if it, if it has not, then why do you believe that to be the case? Uh, no, to summarise, the position hasn't changed at all. I mean, in fact, actually, if you look at the mainstream UK stock market, the FTSE 100 index, it's outperformed nearly all the stock markets over the last two years, including most of the US uh, indices. Uh, so that's good news uh, because we're, you know, we've got the early stages of it coming through. It's not been recognised as yet. That's fine. Just to remind you why we're kind of uh, anticipating it, uh, in simple terms, we would argue that uh, the last 30 years have been defined by you know uh, strong stock market returns. And in a way, if you go 
back to the old fable, Aesop's fable. It's a bit like the hares. The hares have been winning the race for the last 30 years uh, and nearly everyone in the investment world has got lots and lots of hares. Uh, we believe actually, uh, as in Aesop's fable, the tortoise will win the race. Uh, the UK is a bit like tortoise. It's, it's, it's equity income stocks, good and growing income rather than capital appreciation. Uh, it's hugely out of fashion. Uh, I noticed the Bank of America uh, survey of fund management uh, survey came out recently uh, and it, the one thing which uh, fund managers are wholly agreed on uh, about the future is that they're underweight the UK equity market they're, they're underweight something like uh, 20 or 25 percent the biggest position they've got at the moment and you can only really get uh, an outperformance of a stock market over say a 20-year period when you start off at valuations which are very low and with expectations in terms of allocations also at low levels. We've got both of those conditions. I am absolutely more confident in anything about the UK outperforming going forward than I was previously. Two reasons, one, because it's already started outperforming and two, because most people don't expect it to outperform from here. Okay, thank you for sharing your view, which is uh, positive. Uh... I'm happy to hear a positive view uh, on this. And um, I mean, obviously, there has there has been a lot of news about um, what uh, exchanges companies decide to list on. Um, from an investor perspective, how how does where a company is listed or if a company is dual listed affect your views on on stocks? I mean, it's ultimately when we invest in a company, it's company specific, clearly, whether it's listed in the UK or US or, or in the NASDAQ or, or, or the AIM market, you know, it, it's to some extent less important. What we are absolutely focused in on is two things. First of all, on the underlying liquidity, we want a market which is a real market, a market is defined by the uh, willing meet, meeting of willing buyer and willing seller and the equilibrium of that price. And ultimately, we want a, a relatively liquid market because that gets a price not just which is uh, we're able to deal for our clients, but most particularly which reflects all the news flow. Uh, and so we, we want a good a good quote. The second thing is really we want a, a listing where the company itself can ultimately raise additional capital. Um, the, the problem with the UK market at the moment is the cost of capital is really high, especially for some small quoted companies. Uh, the cost of capital is much lower in the US market. Uh, it's good for companies in the US, which means they can raise new capital more easily, uh, but it means probably the long-term returns are less good. As you know, I already think the UK is going to outperform. So coming back to it, I think, uh, although the cost of capital is higher for UK quoted companies, we think that there's more upside potential. Hence, at, at the margin, we'd rather pick companies with more upside potential rather than those which are already uh, more fairly valued already. Okay. And and do you think um, in today's environment, companies should be considering dual listing? I don't think dual listing really helps an awful lot. There's always a primary listing in the end, even in dual listed companies. And so that really is, is what counts. Which rule book are you applying? So primary listing is always important. Dual listing can work. I'm not against it per se, but it can mean that you get a liquidity which is split between two markets. Uh, and ultimately, I want one market which is deep rather than two markets which are shallow. Uh, uh, I think that's the better outcome for the company as well. Okay. And um, just wanted to touch on um, the FCA listing rules form proposals. Um, so the the UK Financial Conduct Authority proposed in, in May this year um, to reform and streamline the listing rules uh, to try and boost the attractiveness of the UK market for companies. If I'm not wrong, this announcement was made in the same week of uh, uh, ARM announcing it was going to list in the US. 
uh, and I think it's founder commenting on BBC Radio 4 that uh, how how the UK's capital image had been damaged by Brexit. Uh, anyways, w- what are your thoughts on the FCA listing rules reform proposals and what uh, what are the implications for UK listed companies? Yes, just to remind you, the, the, the proposals by the FCA are to replace the current standing and premium listings with a single listing category uh, yeah. and to obtain the, the sponsorship of, of companies when they came to market uh, and have other categories of instrument being uh, closed end funds and things will continue to be separate. But coming back to it, um, ultimately, uh, we really want um, uh, the range of potential companies to be served to be the widest possible. Diversification is an enormously valuable trait when you're investing on a portfolio. So from that point of view, bizarrely, I'm not that excited by the FCA's uh, proposals. It it narrows the range of listings and it may narrow the number of companies which can be listed in the UK, uh, albeit that there may be a few more hares rather than tortoises which list here, which is fine as far as I'm concerned. But coming back to it, I mean, I think the key change actually is probably more significant is the FCA is now charged not with the good management of of equity markets in the UK, but most particularly also with productivity improvement. This is a new requirement for them. I think it's an incredibly important one because ultimately it means that they aren't just interested in the trading of the mainstream companies, many of the smaller companies which generate market liquidity, but most particularly generate productivity improvement, drive good and growing skilled levels of unemployment of, of, of employment, and most particularly drive extra tax take to the UK government are also going to be important for them. And I think that does mean at the margin that they will be not just completely focused by the bigness, but actually I think they've got a renewed interest in smallness. I think that's a wonderful thing uh, for quoted companies in the UK market. And, and how long do you think it will be, I mean, when, when the proposals you know, it will become rules uh, until we see the impact of these new rules on, on the UK market. What is your prediction? Well, I mean, they've just closed the consultation. It closed on the 28th of June. Yeah. Um, so that's that's closed for now. So it does mean there will probably be four or five months of a discussion uh, and they will then probably propose their 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 you know, the, the adoption of these rules probably towards the end of the year or early next. Um, as I say, I don't think in themselves, I don't think they make a massive difference. At the margin, they make a difference, but not in the mainstream. So whilst I think the rules will come in, I think there's bigger features, uh, as I say, the focus on productivity improvement, which I think which make a much bigger difference to their behaviour than, than these changes in rules. Uh, I mean, do you have any particular advice for IROs who are probably, you know, working, uh, who may be working with with some firms pre-IPO um, on how to 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 prepare, uh, on how to help companies prepare, or any advice in general for IR professionals? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I think it's a really interesting job because I think. The problem with fund managers is that we keep changing our mind. So you might think we, you know, you know what we think one moment, and then the next moment, you know, we find we've changed our mind on it. Which is, which sounds as though we're kind of very flaky and we're not kind of very consistent. Uh, I think what's what's good for investor relations people is to see a great great range of different views. And at the margin, people change their views here and there. But coming back to it, actually. The, the value really of the engagement between companies uh, and 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 fund managers 
is that both of us sort of have half the jigsaw puzzle. And by putting both of us together, you get a better picture of the complete uh, uh, opportunity and, and the nature of the risks associated with that opportunity, as opposed to uh, just having half the pieces of jigsaw. So coming back to it, uh, I think uh, even for companies which are relatively early stage, six months, 12 months before issue, if you can get a few meetings with fund managers and, and you know, obviously, not all of them want to meet you at that stage, but but if you can get meetings with fund managers, I think it's good. One, because I think it's good for the management team to go through the process. Two, I think the investor relations people will probably find it very helpful. But three, actually, it might actually help you craft what you're looking to actually uh, do with the business going forward and ultimately maybe get more support from fund managers when you come to the IPO. So, so coming back to it, I think the earliest stage you can engage with fund managers, the better. Okay, thank you. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will appreciate that advice. Uh, Just uh, on IR, I had a couple of final questions for you. So the first one is literally like, as an investor, what what do you value most um, in your relationship with uh, investor relations professionals? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, most fund managers are are very focused on figures and and profits and cash generation and all those kind of things. Uh, And and although we do obviously take those kind of features into account, interesting enough, as fund managers, we probably emphasize other things much more significantly than those factors. Specifically, we're very interested in the culture of the business, how the management of the company uh, are linked to the front uh, door of the operations. Sometimes there's a a gap between the board and the the main operations. Sometimes they're really closely aligned. Uh, And specifically, uh, we're interested in how people look after customer service and how you measure customer service and how that's progressed over the years. So coming back to the investor relations, what is wonderful for me as an investor about investor relations is that you have to craft, you know, how the company sees itself. That's the annual report. That's the website. Uh, and both factors in help me enormously in terms of seeing how the company sees itself. And then it allows me from that point forward to then go on and delve into the culture and the customer service, which they did. So coming back to it, I think it's a really I think investor relations per se is a brilliant job because actually it, it it's it's something which makes a big difference if you're if you are able to communicate that well if you are able to 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 help the fund managers get to the uh, number of the questions quicker it makes a more interesting discussion with the management team uh, and perhaps changes people's minds maybe the fund managers maybe the companies uh, both factors are very good news and if we were to look at the stuff that maybe you do not like so much what are the biggest issues that you continue to have in in your engagement with IR uh, some that maybe have been you know there for for many years if there are any yeah, I mean, the, the thing which I, I mean, if we don't have a management team there, and sometimes I do meet IR people, and sometimes actually I've made investment decisions just based on the IR team's, uh, uh, you know, uh, presentation rather than just the company itself. Uh-huh. But, but but specifically, uh, probably I'm I'm uh, compared with a lot of fund managers, I'm probably a bit more. Uh, engaging in terms of suggesting changes or or modifications or, or areas where you can uh, perhaps do things differently, probably more wide ranging uh, as a conversation. And that's quite difficult for an IR team because I might say, well, why don't you do this? Or, or have you, uh, you know, have you thought of something completely radically different? And of course, for an IR team, given that the management team might not be there at that stage, it's very hard for them to answer those questions because they don't want to say anything about those, those kind of unknown uh, open-ended answers without the management team having thought about it 
first. So so that's the only thing I think which is difficult. So when I do meet investor relations teams alone without the management team, um, I think I think the discussions can be very wide ranging. It can probably be quite stimulating for the investor relations team. But ultimately, in terms of, uh, you know, whether these things are interesting or not interesting, you, that's not the meeting. Unfortunately, we can determine that either way. So you would like those conversations to be more focused? Focus is probably the wrong word, actually. What I really mean is they're very wide ranging, but but the 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 suggestions and the uh, nature of that discussion is probably much more uh, off piece compared with the investor relations presentation than many other fund managers you might meet. Okay. And um, lastly, then, I mean, as uh, a lot of our listeners probably will know you and have met you at some of our awards, um, as a judge at our IR Magazine Awards in Europe, um, can you tell us how the UK and European IR are uh, different to IROs that you meet around the world, from the US or other countries? And what uh, can maybe UK IROs learn um, from others? Well, first thing I would say is actually, I, I don't find as much difference as you might think. There are cultural differences, of course, but, oh. but specifically, I think actually the the you know a good IR person in Europe and a good IR person in in, in the US probably have more overlap than, than difference. Uh, I think, of course, there are cultural differences. I think the US team probably has uh, more to say about the scale of the opportunity, the the you know the nature of where the business might be in five years' time or, or, or longer. So they're probably more effusive about um, you know the the the, the kind of the opportunity um i think to be fair i think probably european ir people i think you're more you start off with a more nuanced you know view of the world you're more cautious about projecting too much or or, or not uh, considering the risks enough and i think i think that's good actually i being a european myself of course i'm probably more on the nuanced side rather than the the, the you know the, the scale of the upside thing but but most particularly i think um actually you know what is good news and i think this is very much true is how much the industry's come forward in terms of investor relations industry over the last 20 or 30 years you know i think when we compare to where we are both in the US or indeed the Europe um, over the last 30 years, I think it's radically different. I mean, may, you know, the scale of the difference is hard to to understate, really. Yeah. And I mean, as, as just just to finish, then, I mean, as as the IR um, professionals evolved and, you know, what the, the function has evolved and the, the tasks and the things they do and, and they today job is uh, are now probably much much more than what they did in the past uh, from from a judging perspective then are the things that you look for in a winning IRO uh, changed uh, no no actually and actually being critical and this is going to be a little bit critical you know nearly every annual report I read nearly every investor relations uh, presentation I see for me doesn't start off with the business itself. It does start off with the business and what you do and other things. But what I'm really interested in is 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 where it is excel. You know, in terms of staff. You know, what is the sense of purpose? You know, where are the management team in terms of uh, linking in with the frontline staff? You know, uh, you know, you know things like measures of engagement by staff, staff surveys, that kind of thing. I'm tremendously interested in that. And that that even in the annual report, that often in page 45 or 50, and then there may be a you know, a few paragraphs on it, but there's nothing of any 
uh, statement. You know, it's not that you know we had investor relations uh, uh, sort of conference last week, and 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 the and the engagement of staff was at this level compared with the previous year. It, it does. It's it, very little of that comes into the annual report or indeed the, the presentations. I would love to see more of that. The second thing, as I mentioned already, is customer service. My own assumption is that profit margins around the world are going to peak out. You know, they've moved to record levels, and what we saw in the 70s and the 80s was that profit margins across the global uh, uh, sort of uh, economy, the developed world economies, uh, halved typically between uh, sort of you know early 70s and the mid 70s and 80s. Uh, and effectively, I think we're going to see the same this time. I think customers are going to get very price sensitive. People are going to run out of money. They can't buy as much as they want to. So I think coming back to all of this, I think we're going to be entering a period when customer service makes a difference, not just in terms of you know good service and, and, and good margins, but holding on to prices at a time when many of your competitors are cutting prices. So coming back to it, I'd love to see a lot more about how you deliver customer service, how it's uh, uh, how it's measured, how you know, how it was last quarter or how it was a year ago uh, and how it went through in terms of COVID through that period. Uh, I think those kind of features, I think they, there could be a huge amount more of that. Again, annual reports, very little of it in there. Uh, and I think that agenda will become a much more mainstream agenda for the fund managers, actually. At this stage, as you know, very few fund managers talk about it. My own view is that that's going to become absolutely mainstream as profit margins come under pressure going forward. Thank you so much for sharing your advice with us on, on the show this month, your expertise and for the outlook and your insights. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Very nice to meet you, David. Companies are always looking to build stronger relationships with current and potentially new investors. If you are a public company, Pulse by Public.com can help you build deeper relationships with your investors, share your company narrative with innovative formats, make investor information more discoverable, reach retail investors where they're already engaged, and much more. Pulse by Public.com helps IR teams engage their retail shareholders, amplify company communications, and gain actionable insight into retail investor audiences. Visit public.com slash pulse to schedule a free demo. Hello everyone, I'm Garnet Roach, Senior Reporter at IR Magazine. And for this segment of The Ticker, I'm joined by Andy Barnett, Head of IR at AstraZeneca. So Andy, it is a very great pleasure to have you on the show this month. Thanks, Karen. Uh, I'm very grateful for the invite. It's very nice interesting to, um, to talk to somebody. I mean, you're obviously at quite a high profile company. AstraZeneca has been in the news a huge amount um, in recent years with everything that it did around vaccines and with the pandemic. Um, and this is your first IR position. So I'd love to hear about I guess, what attracted you to investor relations and then how you've been getting up to speed with everything, um, what areas you've kind of leaned on within the company and also from your past experience. Yeah, sure. Uh, great question, by the way. And yes, it is my first IR role. And I have to say, I'm, I'm finding it very exciting. I suppose I'm not a typical recruit in, into IR, although I guess it does seem to be a trend towards hiring more IR people from within the business. Of course, it meant a lot to me that the IRAZ management would trust me with such an important area. And despite um, some clear gaps in, in, in capital markets understanding. Um, but I have to say, it's not the first time I've taken on a position where it's been outside of my comfort zone. I, I often find that I'm, I'm at my best when there's a high degree of uncertainty. I just defined it results in thinking through options a bit better. It means consulting a little bit wider. And, and I think in in investor relations, that becomes very important because, as you know, it's um, 
you're, you're very central to developing the external narrative for the company. I suppose at my core, I'm, I'm a highly curious person. I, I like to experience and learn new things. I'd long viewed IR as a uh, such an important critical role for a company, but it is also one of those roles where you see a company from end to end, which, uh, which strongly appealed to my kind of curious instincts. And when I think about what I was bringing to the role at the time, um, I, I believe it or not, I've been in the industry 25 years this month, um, been very fortunate <laughs> it doesn't feel that long ago but when I think about the I guess the opportunities that people had given me along the way in terms of types of roles therapy areas covered geographies that I've worked within I, I do feel as I've got a reasonably well-rounded view of the industry which is something I've come to rely on I, I guess in discussions with our investors in particular they're often interested in how certain events or news flow or key pieces of information actually fit into an industry-wide context and I'm I've been able to do that in a way that I hope is adding value. You know, all, all that said, it's uh, in a head of IR role, you're in the hot seat quite pretty quickly. So um, there is a there is a steep learning curve. There's no getting away from it. Um, there was really no alternative to investing the time and effort to learn and get to know the stakeholders. Uh, but at the same time, I guess I have some confidence that you know at least I was bringing. Um, often a different perspective to IR than 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 they'd had previously. Which I'm, I'm hoping that so far has been adding value to the people we interact with. And, and what about with investors and analysts? Um, I mean, did you have any of those relationships previously? Did you sort of implement a particular strategy in terms of building those when you joined uh, when you when you moved into this role? You know, I, in in my immediate past roles. I was running um, global franchises within our oncology business. So I was often called upon to engage with analysts to answer questions as the subject matter expert. Um, I was often called upon to figure out the answers that were right to provide to analysts and investors on particular particular topics that are in my area of responsibility. Uh, but in terms of actually getting to know um, the analyst community and the investment community, um, I really was starting um, from from scratch in many respects, so I didn't didn't actually have very many strong relationships with that community. So, I guess early on that was a top priority: get get to know the people, get to know the stakeholders, try and understand um, what's important to them, try and understand their views on our business, try and figure out where there might be um, alignment or misalignment or areas the potential clarification, and also where I might be able to add value. Um, and you know, I'm fortunate. I've got a very, very good team um, who are who were able to help me get started um, in, a, in an efficient way. So um, it was uh, um, actually I've really enjoyed getting to know the people with whom we interact with most um, because you're dealing with smart, um, hardworking, motivated. Um, people that often challenge the way you think and and actually feed in great ideas too so you know, I, I view IR as not just us communicating outwards but it's also taking ideas um, insights and helping the organization to grow so um, you know that's been that's been uh, a terrific part of the role I've probably enjoyed that bit most actually it's really interesting um, some of the points that you make about kind of being curious and these kind of the, the people elements of investor relations on both sides. Um, that seems to be, so from, from my experience, that seems to be the kind of common factor among particularly successful IROs. Um, obviously, in a company like AstraZeneca, there's 
you know, there's the science side of everything and you, you study biochemistry, you, you study business studies. I mean, what's the what's the balance like um, in the role between those things? Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent question. And I would say AstraZeneca places an extraordinarily high focus on understanding of the science and the biology of diseases. You know, um, I would probably, you know, I've, I've worked in two other companies previously, but in my experience so far is the kind of depth and breadth of conversations around disease biology and how medicines work and their eventual positioning in, in, a, in a treatment algorithm um, is, is quite extensive here. Uh, probably uh, probably more extensive than I experienced in other companies. So I think definitely having a, a, um, at least a curiosity and a desire to learn the science, if not a science background, um, is, is hugely valuable here. I think if you weren't curious about science and wanting to learn it, um, this probably wouldn't be the right place to work because it is very much part of the way even the most senior part members of the company work and think. Um, so my background in biochemistry and, and roles through drug development uh, has certainly helped that. I think with, as you pointed out, I, I did actually also study business. Um, and, and I guess in, in interacting with the analyst community, it, 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 at least I was, wasn't starting from scratch in terms of understanding a P&L, the nuances of financial reporting. I have had a, a variety of roles where, in fact, most of the roles I've had in the last 10 years or so have, have been made me responsible for a PL. Um, so un understanding um, at least to a, a, a reasonably conversational level um, how a company's financial development is likely to proceed and how we're reporting, um, I wasn't starting from scratch. Um, but it is still an area where I feel like I've got a lot of opportunity to grow and learn. And you know, thankfully, I've got people in the team with with real depth of experience in in those dimensions and you know I, i'm learning every day but um having uh, a scientific understanding and background at least in this role from my experience to date has been hugely valuable I, I rely on that a lot and you you mentioned um sort of the the, the interactions with the buy side with the sell side is one of the perhaps most enjoyable elements of the role so far i mean what would you say is your biggest achievement in terms of investor relations has there been a defining moment where you thought that was great it's interesting actually because the company um has as i'm sure you've seen has been doing particularly well you know both in terms of business performance pipeline development um, but the portfolio has been getting quite broad and complex uh, in many respects. And and given that kind of rapid expansion and growth, the amount of content and information that we're managing has been growing exponentially. Um, I, I think without doubt, the biggest challenge I faced, and it's probably true of anybody coming into the IR team or into the management of this company, trying to keep on top of the news flow and the key lines of questioning from investors and analysts is, is quite challenging. Uh, and I very quickly realized that um, I wasn't the only one that was finding it difficult when I started. Um, so one of the things I set out to do straight away was to build some systems and tools that enabled us to pinpoint key information more quickly and make it more accessible, easier to communicate, um, and hopefully get to a point where we can respond rapidly, accurately, and consistently to questions that we might get. So I We've made great progress. I'm, I'm hopeful that we've taken quite a bit of stress out of the system because you know, not knowing answers and being put on the spot is often a stressful position for people to be in. And I'm hoping that we've we've enabled that to happen less often than it was happening before. Um, but it is still it's still a complex business that we we need to try and somehow 
communicate efficiently and effectively externally. So you know, simplifying our investment thesis, um, understanding how you know we're thinking about redefining the treatment of diseases, not just individual medicines, and articulating what value that might create for shareholders is is still something that I'm, I'm working on uh, with the team, but it is something that's pretty exciting because, you know, you're talking about changing the course of a disease for patients and potentially even curing patients um, across a range of, of disease areas, which is, um, you know, it's, it's a real privilege to be able to um, try and formulate that narrative because it's so important for people. And what are some, I was hoping you might be able to talk a bit about ESG and also how that fits into some of the issues that your investors and analysts have wanted to hear about and and where you see those themes going in the in the near term. I mean, ESG has been a a, a constantly growing theme for our group and our company, and you, I'm sure you've you've seen that we are aiming to be at the forefront of sustainability as a company, not not just because it's the right thing to do for our company, but we also want to be acting as a role model for other companies to follow suit. And we do think the climate emergency is something that everybody needs to take seriously. And you know, even recently announcing that we're planning to uh, plant over 200 million trees is a is an example of, of just that. You know, our shareholder base are um, routinely and regularly asking us um, increasing questions about um, our commitment to sustainability and ESG in general. Um, the range of questions is quite broad. Um, we take it very seriously. We have several members of our team allocated to spe specializing in ESG. Um, and it, it is an area that I think you see that is quite central to our communications, even on our quarterly communications. You can see that we do place a heavy emphasis on ESG and in particular sustainability um, in in our external narrative. We just think it's um, important for us to play a leading role. I know that during the pandemic, for example, and obviously we can't have a conversation with AstraZeneca yeah. without talking about COVID-19, but I know that, I mean, we write so much and we hear so much about multi-stakeholder yeah. approaches. And I imagine that for a company like AstraZeneca and what the company was doing during that period, the multi-stakeholder approach must have really come to the forefront. I mean, governments were involved, communities were involved, everybody knew everything that was kind of, you know, AstraZeneca was on the tongues of every person everywhere. Um, how has that shaped the IR programme? What sort of impact did that focus have? Yeah, it's, an, it's a great question. You know, firstly, um, and I joined AstraZeneca um, coming up to five years ago, um, everybody that I speak to in the company has been immensely proud of the work that we did to try and help the world emerge from the COVID pandemic. It has proved to be a particularly galvanizing activity that we undertook. Um, in a, in a, just some numbers wise, you know, we supplied more than 3 billion doses at almost no profit. Um, and even in the, in the first year, it's estimated to sa have saved more than 6 million lives. Um, you know, when you can talk about those kind of things to uh, external parties, but also employees within the company, you can understand why, you know, AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca went from being a well-known pharma company to effectively being a household name. Um, it is absolutely helping with recruitment of talent, particularly young talent. Um, it wasn't always smooth sailing, as you know, um, but I think without question, the company is stronger as a result of our efforts during COVID. Um, you know, we forged 
meaningful relationships with policymakers around the world. We learned a lot in terms of how fast we can move um, in new medicines development, engaging with external parties. And in terms of IR, um, I mean, the most obvious change is we do considerably more investor interactions um, because we we are you know, fully virtually enabled. So um, we are meeting a lot more people um, virtually than before. Um, we have some degree of flexibility in the way that we work um, locations-wise, which I think is, um, is, is helping us to engage um, with our investors more efficiently. Um, I'd say in the way that we um, think about our external narrative, um, it, it, you know, we, we've been consciously um, and for some time very focused on making sure that we share the right information at the right times um, to, to the external world. And, and I think COVID has helped us um, uh, do that even more effectively. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, I guess in summary, um, we, I think we've come out of this a lot stronger as a company. There certainly feels to feels to me to be a real sense of common purpose um, that was um, uh, amplified as a result of um, our efforts during COVID. And by the way, efforts during COVID haven't haven't subsided. We're still um, producing antibodies that we hope will help the immune compromised um, patients who don't respond effectively or mount an immune response to a vaccine. Um, where there's still a very high unmet need. Very interesting. Thank you, Andy. Thank you so much for joining us on the ticker. And it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Mark your calendar and book your place now for a series of IR Magazine events this fall and winter. At our Small Cap Forum in New York on September the 28th, leading industry experts discuss how IR heads at smaller cap companies can increase their company's presence in the markets. Also in New York on December the 1st, we are holding our first ever Artificial Intelligence for IR Forum, showcasing the latest technologies available to IR teams right now and providing practical advice about how to use AI as part of investor relations. Finally, join us in Singapore on December the 5th and Hong Kong on December the 8th for IR Magazine's prestigious Greater China and Southeast Asia Forum and Awards, where we will celebrate first-in-class investor relations in the regions. Visit irmagazine.com forward slash events to find out more and book your place. See you in New York, London and Hong Kong from all of us at IR Magazine. Welcome back to our listeners again. Welcome to IR Pulse, the segment where we talk to IROs, analysts and companies executives about the evolution of IR. This month, I'm delighted to be joined by Katie Perry, GM of Investor Relations at Public. Katie, thank you for joining me this month. Hi, it's great to be here again. How have you been? Been good, been busy, uh, but getting ready for getting ready for the fall. How about yourself? Yeah, yeah, good, good. Not not complaining. Um, thank you for joining me today. It's a great opportunity to have you on the show this month because um, I just wanted to discuss Public's most recently published report, uh, the Retail Investor Report. I had the opportunity to take a look at it. Uh, it's really great. It does offer a comprehensive overview uh, of the retail investor market uh, and a deal of insights on, on their behavior. But of course, you know more than I do uh, on the report. So to start with, I just wanted to ask you if there was something particularly surprising about the data uh, and um, yeah, your research. 
There was a lot of surprising stuff in there, mostly because I think retail investors are often kind of stereotyped as one thing. And what our goal with, with this report was to really unearth a lot of insights into sort of the multidimensional and evolving nature of retail investors. So Publix, a retail investing app, we're in the US and now in the UK. Um, we have millions of retail investors, so we always kind of talk to the investors and look at behavior on our platform to really understand where retail investors are at at any given moment. Um, and so in this in this study, we did a couple of things. One, we looked at platform data across our you know millions of investors. What were they um, engaging with? What are they investing in? And we also did a qualitative survey of 2000 plus retail investors digging into sort of the behaviors wow. and attitudes. So I think the the biggest thing that surprises a lot of people is we hear a lot about um, kind of the retail investing boom, 2020 to 2021. And then there was kind of less attention on retail after that. And I think there was sort of a perception that they stopped or they would go away. Yeah, <laughs> they went away. Yeah. And what the data shows is they haven't gone anywhere. And um, they're actually involved in in the public markets at the same levels, if not slightly greater than 2021. Um, but what they're doing has really changed a lot. I think experience was a great teacher. And so we continue to see more diversification, really investors being open-minded about new asset types, new companies, new strategies, and more focus on research. Um, and I think that's something that might surprise people too. I think sometimes people assume retail investors are just kind of following the hype. What we found over time is our investors are really looking at, uh, financial statements, they want to hear from executives, and they're really doing more diligence than they had in the past. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we, there is some data around this point that you just made about the research. So I'm, I'm just going to ask you a question about it a little bit later. But one of the things I wanted to cover first is like in general, like from your report, if we if you were to like narrow down the top three factors that, you know, are influencing um, retail investor decision at the moment and also what types of um, investment strategies that they do prioritize? What what are those? You would just pick three. This is a really key insight, I think, for IR teams because it goes back to sort of this thinking about retail investors multidimensionally. Yeah. We mm -hmm. actually asked like, what are what are the factors that influence your decisions and told them to kind of select all that apply. The top three were were growth potential, not super surprising, but a story they believe in increasingly you know does the company anchor to a larger trend is it part of a value chain is it part of something bigger that they are familiar with the second is just health of the business so again they're like looking into to the financial metrics and i think sometimes there's a misconception that ir teams sort of need to play this part with retail right so whether it's memes jokes or being ultra accessible but really i think investors are looking for easier access to um financial metrics and other other insight into the business to help them make a decision. The third top factor was trust and leadership. And I think this is a little more about competence over relatability. I think there was sort of a movement for executives to position themselves as more human um, back in 2020, 2021. And I think now there's a lot of emphasis on, do I trust this person's expertise in the space? Do I think they can lead? Really yeah. interesting in this question was that the la the least popular thing people selected as a top factor influencing their decision was social media hype or buzz. So something trending on social was actually the least 
cited reason for people investing, which I think is a positive outcome, but something that might surprise people. Um, just the last point on this, I mean, maybe social media is the less influencing factor in that, you know, decision, decision making, but uh, it is still a factor, I, I suppose, for, for retail investors. So maybe your one piece of advice for IR, uh, IROs at companies that are maybe new to that engagement with retail on how to be successful on a social media retail engagement strategy. Yeah, it's, this was really interesting because in addition to just data that shows investors are diversifying their portfolios, they're also diversifying the sources from which they get information. And so mm-hmm. social is still an important source. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what's happened now is it's blended among many other sources. So they're more likely to go to your IR site, they're more likely to read financial news, and they're becoming less reliant on social only. Um, but to your point, you know, retail investors are spending a lot of time on social channels and that's where they're, they're learning about a lot of things. And I think social is a place where people could first discover, um, certain companies, even if they're not immediately taking action just from social, I think it's still an important place to be present and discoverable. And then people will learn about you from there. Um, I think the key things with social is defined, um, formats and templates for how to translate what you're already doing into that format instead of trying to recreate the wheel. So for example, on public, we'll have executives come on after an earnings call and do like a 15 minute recap Q&A on one of our audio shows, bulleting out the key things they covered. It's the same material essentially that they've already shared. Um, and they're just resharing it in a shorter form format for investors. So not a huge lift in terms of recreating that content. So I think finding ways to like build social um, share outs within existing workflows is a is a good idea and something that is effective on teams that may be a little leaner on resources. Okay. That's, uh, again, great, great advice. I mean, um, I'm sure that a lot of IROs listening can, can relate. Um, can relate to that um, just before we close katie is there anything else that you want to kind of like mention and point out i know there were lots of findings on uh, retail positions on esg uh there was something actually really cool about the impact of like uh, cultural and social events like the barbie movie dropout or, or on stock markets for the companies involved in that like wh- what would you is there anything else you would like to kind of bring to our listeners attention Yeah, I think a couple things. Um, ESG was interesting. A lot of like, I think at least in the US, that's obviously very politicized. And I think um, a lot of people are making decisions on ESG based on different sets of facts. So there wasn't a lot of alignment on what ESG as a strategy meant. Um, So some people thought it meant necessarily uh, sacrificing financial metrics for the greater good. Other people saw it as uh, a way for businesses to be sustainable in the long term. And so I think if you're, you know, on the ESG side of things, there's a little bit of education, I think, on helping reframe that to, for retail investors. With with Barbie and, and Bud Light, I think we looked at sort of these cultural moments and um, how they might have impacted retail investor behavior. And what we found was that in these cases, at least, um, things that are trending in culture um, translate to interest from retail investors. And that's because people are an investor in the same way they're a consumer, in the same way they're going about their daily lives. A lot of retail investors have, you know, their investing app on their home screen of their phone right next to their Amazon Prime or their uh, Instagram. And so 
all this stuff is happening in the context of their lives. And so I think increasingly investors are seeing things happening in the real world and then going to, wait, is this like an opportunity? And we especially saw that with, with Barbie's success. A lot of people at that moment realized that Mattel owned Barbie and that they could invest in Mattel. Um, so obviously it's not investment advice, but that was a moment where people said, hey, wait a minute, like, I, is there something here? And we continue to see a lot of that among retail investors. Is there anything you think that IR teams can can learn from the Barbie movie impact? Yes, I think sometimes it can be easy if you're embedded in the day to day of like as an IRO to forget that, you know, everyday retail investors, they're not they're not uninformed, but they might not know where your business intersects with things they're actually seeing and experiencing. Um, so if you're a streaming platform, it might be helpful when you're engaging with retail investors for them to know what sh- popular shows that you guys have um, and, and making those connections more clear um, and not assuming that retail investors know, you know, that you own XYZ property or, um, you know, if you're AMC, you're the one who cut the deal with Taylor Swift to do the, the film screenings and things like that. So finding ways to draw those connections more directly for retail investors might be a helpful way to to kind of get on the radar um, so people can kind of explore your stock in the context of things they see and feel and touch. Thanks, Katie, for sharing your insights with us. Our listeners can go on your website, public.com slash pulse and download the report for free. It's full of great insights, so do download it and uh, I'll speak to you next time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Ticker Podcast, brought to you by IR Magazine, in partnership with our sponsor, Pulse by Public.com. Huge thanks for their support. You can learn more about Pulse at Public.com forward slash Pulse. Thanks also to everyone who took the time of being with us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, thanks for listening.